Welcome to Coach House Talks. A year or so ago, um, Sita and I bought a small basil plant that she kept in her flat. It was a bit of an afterthought, really. It's not the kind of thing we necessarily would go out to, to go and buy. Um, but I think we chose it initially because we couldn't find a fresh pack in the, in the shop. And we just like, oh yeah, we'll just get the plant, you know, we'll, we'll do something with it. Um, anyway, I, I happily watered it at first, um, but I wasn't at Sita's flat all the time. Uh, I'd come by and water it occasionally. And uh, as it turned out, uh, Sita usually remembered to water it, water it in that small window of time just before I set off my parents' house. And when I arrived at her door, giving it just enough time to perk up, and that's not to mention the fact that it inhabited a space on the windowsill that let in about 1% of the daylight. Um, so unbelievably, it actually survived for about six months before drying up into a few shriveled, unusable stalks. Sadly, it didn't have the spirit of God there to keep it alive. I tell this true story uh, because it reminds me of a similar situation that Paul kept on encountering. There are fresh new believers springing up everywhere where he preached and visited, and he needed to find a way to instruct and correct and encourage them and to keep this fresh growth alive um, and not just trying to do things sporadically, but trying to sustain the believers and help them to become um, sufficient in God. So the nine letters that we're looking at today, uh, not every single one in detail, but in summary, uh, these represent Paul's efforts to keep the church growing and going in the right direction. And the application extends to us today because we need nurture as a church just as much as the new believers did. But first, I'm just going to give a brief review of where we're up to just to look at our, our big picture. So we've come a long way since we started in Genesis. Um, we started it, uh, in Eden, and we've, we've seen God's relationship with humanity change, shape several times, from initial harmony um, with God uh, to man's descent into sin, and God's choice to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And finally, as we've seen, we've encountered Jesus, the promised descendant who was going to put everything right. Jesus dies and was resurrected. So we're left thinking, what's next? Well, it's the time of the church, which we're still in today. Paul's letters to the churches happen in light of the fact that Jesus has returned to heaven, but he will be coming back to earth again to judge those who don't believe and to rescue those who trust in him. And this shapes Paul's mission to establish churches. So we read in 2 Corinthians 5.20, and Paul says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul wants all people to be reconciled to God and to have their relationship with him mended before it's too late. And that's what reconciliation means. Essentially, something that was once in a good state has become broken, but then it's been mended again. So Paul wants all people's relationship with God to be mended again. As human beings, because of the fall, because of sin, we start off in this position of fracture with God. And Paul wants all people to come to a mended relationship with God. And the believers he's writing to have had their, this relationship mended. They've come to know Jesus. But that's just the beginning. He's an ambassador. He's a representative. 
And the picture in some ways is similar to the protege of a great general who approaches a city that's destined to be conquered and implores the people to lay down their arms and join them before the army pushes through and destroys it. It's almost quite a military picture that he's coming to say, look, look, you know, I'm bringing terms of peace. This is how you can make your peace of God and have this relationship mended. So I, I, I implore you not to resist this call to peace. So just looking a bit at Paul's travels and his, uh, the, the churches he established, we've heard all about it last week. Um, the drama put on by the kids accurately showed how turbulent and precarious Paul's life was. There were so many things happening and he did so much traveling. The letters we're looking at today all come from him and address the churches God led him to establish in his three missionary journeys. He covered an insane amount of ground. I can't remember how many thousands of miles it was, but it was a lot. He undertook three journeys for the purpose of bringing the gospel to the world and to establish churches. And we know he faced constant hardships and difficulties along the way. Acts tells us his story on quite a practical level with interjections of narration and gospel preaching recorded in between. Much of the narrative follows Paul's missionary journey, but it doesn't go into detail always about the interactions he has with these many churches that he establishes. And that's where his letters come in. So the letters we're looking at today, uh, in order in your Bibles, are from Romans to 2 Thessalonians. Um, and these exclude the personal letters, such as Timothy and Philemon, which uh, Daniel will be covering next week. Um, and these are written to these new and relative, well, relatively new congregations to help establish them in their faith. So let's just think about church for a moment and th this idea of church, which um, Paul was establishing. Because when we say churches, we may imagine buildings or steeples or even a modern congregation like ours. Um, or even closer to the original, you might imagine a house church and think, well, that's pretty original. However, I think we need to remember that even these house churches or churches at all were a completely new thing. And I think there's three sort of massive challenges to consider. It was pretty new for the Jews. They had a rough equivalent with the synagogues where the word was preached and teaching was given on the scriptures. But church was still a new entity for them. And then further removed from that, it was very, very new for non-Jews which Paul was reaching a lot of the time. He addressed churches that were made up of many non-Jewish people who had absolutely no idea what the church should look like or religious service based around Jesus. Add to that the fact that Paul had very little time to consolidate anything because he was traveling around all the time. If you read Acts, you see that he rarely stayed in one place. There was a few occasions where he does, um, but he common move, commonly moved on after a brief period of time leaving the believers, in a purely material sense, to fend for themselves. He wasn't usually a resident leader. It's astounding that the church got off the ground at all. Um, I'd, I'd just breaking away from my notes, really, but I, I know that there's a, a couple of famous examples of historians who've looked at the beginning of the church, and they've said, actually, that really pushes us towards faith in Jesus because it's so astounding that it got off the ground at all. The more you think about it, the more the, ch the challenges multiply. And the reality is that, you know, the, the best explanation for that is that God has had his hand in it. So imagine yourself being a new church leader and all the questions you've had, you would have under these circumstances. What do you do in the service? Why should you meet together at all? 
How should conflict be resolved? What kind of people should we be? What do we do while we wait for Jesus to return? You see, these were new believers at the beginning of their journey. They responded to the good news about Jesus, but many of them would have had little idea what this would have meant. If you think back to when you first became a Christian, you can probably imagine it. Sure, you made a decision to follow Jesus in some way. You believe you'd been forgiven and had a, had a restored relationship with God. There's some core things that probably were in place. But we know that that's just the beginning of the journey. I know for me personally, it took me a long time for many of my attitudes to change and for my understanding of God to change. And guess what? I'm still in that process today. But the letters give us a map of what this journey with Jesus should look like for all of us. And Paul wants to represent Jesus to these new believers and teach them what it means to live like as a Christian. So let's just zoom in on Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. It's, a one, it's one of the young churches he established, and when he's writing to them, it's a very, very early letter in 1 Thessalonians um, that he, he, had to, he established briefly, and then he had, to, he had to leave. And this is him just writing back to them. So we read in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 12, and then verse 17. You just hear his attitude here. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. But brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Just think about Paul's attitude expressed here. He needed to find some way to instruct and encourage the believers in these vulnerable young churches. His mind was fixed on helping them to grow through encouragement, example, teaching, and correction. On the one hand, he, he addresses pressing questions in the letters more generally, and he addresses issues that the believers just weren't very informed about. For example, in other letters, he covers questions such as, should I eat food previously offered to idols? Is it right or wrong to be married? Will the dead be resurrected? Should we follow the Jewish law? How should I respond to persecution? There's all of these questions emerging because of the context that Paul's writing to. So all of these letters are occasional. They are addressing issues that were coming out of the churches that had been established, and Paul had to, to talk to these issues. Um, today, you can imagine similar kind of practical questions coming up. For example, how should Christians think about homosexuality or what should Christians have to do with politics? Or how do I deal with anti-Christian worldviews being taught to my children? Each of these letters addresses these kind of hot topics. But Paul makes it very clear that it's not just about what you do outwardly, but it's how your attitudes and your actions are changed as believers and inform all the choices you make. So I want to look at this idea, and it's probably the main idea in this message is, is growing in faith. And Paul addresses this in numerous letters in numerous different ways, but we're gonna have a look at the book of Colossians, which covers it in quite some detail. 
Um, so if we read uh, Colossians 2, verse 6 to 7, it tells us, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. There is an unbreakable link between coming to know Jesus and an ongoing life of faith. And in this passage, Paul offers two metaphors for this growth. The first is being rooted and the second is being built up. So if you imagine a tree, an impressive, an impressive tree may be tall or broad, but a strong tree that weathers all seasons is one that has deep roots. But then Paul switches metaphors to the building a little bit. On the other hand, a building doesn't just stop at its foundation. It wouldn't make sense, would it? It becomes a building as bricks are added, steel girders are installed, and it becomes a complete dwelling that's fit for habitation. There's a sense of the foundation has to be laid, but there also has to be growth. And Paul is relating this to the Christian faith. But more specifically, we read that it's in him, as in in Jesus. So, for example, it says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. This isn't just moral improvement that we're talking about, and that's not what Paul's trying to achieve. We aren't just in a process of accumulating moral virtues on the quest of self-centered self-betterment. Instead, we're told to live our lives in Jesus and be built up in him. We change in the right way when we come to realize who God is and allow him to shape and change us. We don't just know more, we know him more. We don't just develop general kindness. We experience God's kindness and we express it. As a child imitates a father that he loves and respects, we're shaped through this relationship with God as our father. And a little later, Paul gives more explanation along with some practical instruction in two halves. The first is Colossians 3, verse 5 to 10. He says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. We have this interesting metaphor of taking off the old clothing and putting on the new. As individuals, there are things that you must be letting go of, like old clothing, because we have become Christians. And they fall into two rough categories in the order given in this passage. He relates primarily internal attitudes, for example, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, but then also external practices that affect the way that you treat other people, like anger, rage, malice. Um, you can see it's quite outgoing and effective to the people that you're, you're encountering as a person. For all these things, they're told to put them to death because they have received a new nature and taken off the old one. Paul knows that they've become believers. They've come to Jesus. They've been saved. But as a result of their salvation, not to earn their salvation, but as a result of it, they're now to take off these things that are related to their old life and remember that remember their new nature and put on all the characteristics that are to do with that. 
So it's getting rid of the old and it's bringing in the new. But there's actually a lot more to it than this. Paul wants them to know how they should fit together as a church because it's not just an individualistic thing. So he goes on to say this in verses, in, uh, verses 11 to 14. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We haven't become isolated, new little creations, but we've joined God's chosen people, his church, made up of people who have responded to the good news about Jesus. There's nothing amazing or special about us. Our defining feature as people in the church is that we follow Jesus, and that is what connects us together. So earlier we used this example of ambassadors. So just to continue with this metaphor a little bit, using the example of an embassy, and I think it will be helpful again. An embassy is a collection of buildings and land that represent the people of a foreign nation. Inside are ambassadors and diplomats who represent the country. In that particular small space in the middle of a foreign country, the laws of their country apply and it operates differently to the rest of the land where the embassy resides. I think Paul imagined churches a little bit like this, as outposts of the kingdom of God on earth. Not only that, but the church looks forward to the day when the whole earth will become under God's rule and it will be set right once more. And there's a lot of significance to this. When you think of a culture, you think of various attitudes, traditions, foods, language, ethnicity, uh, you know, British weather, Thai smiles, Indian food. Paul describes what, what he wants the, church of the, cult, the culture of the church to be like. And it's this, full of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul doesn't tie Christianity to any ethnicity or culture. Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. God doesn't care about where the believers are from or what their background is. Instead, he wants them to be characterized by love for one another. And see verse 14 for that. Whatever their diverse backgrounds are, that should be the defining feature of the church. Love for each other as believers, no matter our past or background. I think that's very significant because there's so many temptations in the world today to define ourselves by um, any number of different factors, whether it's politics or interests or, or, you know, whatever it is, whatever class of society that you're from. But within the church, it's very, very clear that its character, the characteristics of Christ that should make the church identifiable to people not their other divisions. Those are the divisions have been got rid of in Jesus. And this is the new criteria that Paul is laying down. And if you think about that in context, that's really important because especially, I don't have time to go into it, but in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a very, very diverse group of Christians um, made up of all sorts of people that you could imagine would just never get on in practice. Jews, Gentiles, all sorts of people from all over the place. It was quite a multicultural city. 
Um, and we get in books like that and in Colossians as well, this idea that there really is, th 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 there is such a need that Paul addresses and that God leads him to address, which is that people don't let these external markers of their identity get in the way. It's leveled instead and say, actually, we all come, we all have the same relationship with God and that is what binds us together. And we're to identify ourselves, not by our outward characteristics, but by the characteristics of love and love for one another. So thinking about the church today, what does this mean for us? We've looked at Colossians, but the same principle is at work across all of Paul's letters. He wants believers to grow together in the faith that they have received and responded to. And this applies to us as much as to them, because we're waiting for the same thing that they are, for Jesus' return and the final restoration when all things will be set right. We've reached the last chapter of the story, but we've not reached the last page. We also need to know how to live for Jesus in this in-between period of time. So let's look at some key things for us to consider as Christians today that's been raised um, in the scriptures we've looked at. The first big one is our identity. These letters all challenge the way we think about identity. It's easy enough to say, I'm a Christian, but it's a lot harder to give control, uh, give God control of our lives and keep him at the forefront of our minds. When you're caught up in a traffic jam, someone's annoying you at work, you feel fed up with church, it's very easy to forget that God has forgiven us and given us a new nature and just revert back to the old. Very quickly, the compassion, love, and kindness that should characterize us can very easily get lost. And I know that from personal experience. I think we all do. The, you know, we all struggle with it because we're all living as human beings in a human body. And there's a couple, but I think to help this, there's a couple of things for us to remember. The first thing is the love of God. I find that it's most easy to get distracted when we've forgotten what God has done for us. It escapes our mind in the moment. For example, if I miss praying in the morning before I launch into a full day of work, if I don't give God headspace, I quickly descend into doing things my own way without reference to him. The love of God is such a healthy reminder to us. We miss out when we don't make time for him. I don't know about you, but how many times you've been stressed to the highest degree and then take, finally taken a moment aside to pray about it and the situation actually changes. I think the second aspect of God's love is that God's love includes grace. Remembering God's love also helps us in another way. When we think of God's love, we're reminded that life is in his hands. He cares for us, even if we've let him down or we've failed or we're frustrated with the pace of change. When we're talking about taking on this new nature before, it's a lifelong process of letting go of the old and allowing the new to grow. And that can be frustrating because we don't always see change at the pace that we want it to be. But because of God's grace to us and his continual love, we can get up again and we can keep trying. It takes the pressure off us to try and be something. We come to him, we commit ourselves to him and remember who he is and what he's done and we let him do the changing. The attitudes we read about in Colossians, kindness, compassion, love, humility and more, they can't be created by force of will. I can't force myself to be loving. I can't force myself to have an attitude of humility. We can mimic them and we can genuinely attempt them, but the change comes from God and we've got to remember that. As we consider God's love for us and trust him over time, situation by situation, we gradually begin to share his attitudes. And there's another related point. 
and it's the importance of encouragement. And this is something that's present across all of Paul's letters, really. As we've said, the Christian faith doesn't happen in isolation. There's so much evidence in Paul's words that change happens as Christians help one another and spend time with one another. Another response to living in our Christianity is to say this, it happens properly when we help each other to do it. I think particularly of our home groups, actually, where there's this opportunity for us to look at the Bible together, encourage each other and pray for each other. I've had a very, very challenging year, and I don't think I would have survived it except for the encouragement and prayer of other Christians. It's as simple as that. Obviously, God's w- obviously ultimately, that's due to God, but God works through people. When you let others help you, you are not being a burden to them. And I think that's very important to remember. It's the right thing to do, and it's the spiritual thing to do. We have a duty to love one another and share our burdens. Otherwise, we're opening ourselves up to isolation and everything that comes with that. I think it's very easy and very tempting to, if you're going through a difficult time, to hold things in and to not want to bother other people with it. But let me assure you from personal experience that causes far more problems than it solves a lot of the time. I think it's important to share your burdens as Christians with one another, obviously with people you trust, but the consequences of not doing that can lead to, it can lead to more sin, it can lead to more isolation, it can lead to just even more struggle. It's really important. And finally, and related to the other two points, we must keep the end in mind. This plays out in a lot of ways that I don't have time to cover. But Paul conducted his mission with the knowledge that the only thing remaining to happen was the coming of Jesus. To save those who believe and to judge those who don't. Of course, attached to this is the idea that he was an ambassador for Christ. And we aren't so different. Whether we like it or not, our words, our attitudes and our lives say something about what Christianity is. The world is in dire need of a reconciliation with God, that is, a mended relationship with God. Ultimately, people's eternal destiny is at stake, so we must collectively and individually be a witness to the world and make disciples of all nations, as Matthew 28 says. But if you're feeling daunted by this, as I very often am, then I do have some encouragement. Part of Paul's command to the church is with them to love one another in the church. And we put this alongside the fact that we must also look after and encourage one another in the faith. The way we are as a church and what we do as a church and what we let characterize us as a church is itself a witness to the world. It tells people what God is like through us collectively. And on this occasion, I do want to just emphasize the communal part of this. Individually, for example, we may feel really weak and afraid telling people about their need to be saved. And of course, it is something we should do. However, we can help bring the gospel to the world as a church together. And don't forget, you are not God's only tool in the toolbox. It's really important to remember. and It's very, very easy to forget. I think we often act as if, if I don't tell this or that person, it's all over, it's finished for them, and it's absolutely on me. But I don't tend to see that within the Bible. I think collectively it is upon us as a church to bring the gospel to the world. Yes, that means sharing, sharing the gospel with people. Of course it does. 
But I think we often get caught up in a mentality that converting someone or bringing someone to Jesus is entirely our responsibility. But actually, we're forgetting that God is at work, not just through us, but through all God's people. It's not all on you. It's not even all on our church or all the churches in Manchester or the UK. As each of us does our bit faithfully for God and sees what he is asking us to do in any given moment to make our contribution to his mission, God works things together with different people's gifts, with different people's strengths, with different people's weaknesses, and is able to bring people together for, to himself. So I say, be a good ambassador for Jesus, telling people the good news and living in the reality of this good news as an individual and in the church. Keep on growing in faith and growing the faith with God's constant help. And that's my message to you today. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and at www.coachhousechurch.org.